Net neutrality is the principle for maintaining a free and open internet, meaning internet service providers cannot discriminate between different types of online content. Late last week, the Federal Communications Commission adopted a net neutrality policy. The policy is designed to preserve online competition by treating all internet traffic equally, but some are saying the FCC will have too much regulatory power. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we'll speak with a professor in the Indiana University Department of Telecommunications, a state representative, and the executive vice president of Smithville Communications. And we invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times. Today we're going to talk about the uh, concept of net neutrality, which is the principle for maintaining a a free and open Internet. Um, Internet providers can't discriminate between different types of online content under uh, the idea of net neutrality. Today we'll be talking about that as we discuss the Federal Communications Commission's uh, decision to implement stronger open Internet protections that ban charging higher prices for faster speeds as well as blocking certain Internet content. Uh, We have three guests with us in the studio today. Our guests are Barbara Cherry, professor in the Indiana University Department of Telecommunications. She is a former FCC strategic planning deputy. State Representative Matt Pierce of Bloomington is here, and Matt is also a faculty member in telecommunications here at IU. And Colin McCarty is with us. He is the executive vice president of Smithville Communications. You can join our conversation by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So that's plenty of ways to get a hold of us, and we have uh, we have great guests with us. So if you are uh, interested in this topic, if you don't understand it totally, as a lot of people don't, uh, please give us a call and, and uh, take a take a good listen. So thank you to all of you for being here. And I want to start with Barbara. So. Uh, you know, I think we just need sort of um, to set the set the stage here. So, what you know, how would you describe net neutrality? What what is the issue, and and what's the importance of what the FCC did last week? Well, on the, fundamentally, what the issue is is a legal problem. Uh, what the FCC did last uh, Thursday was adopt an order that gives them the legal authority to establish <clears throat> sustainable rules. That is, that they're likely to be sustainable by the courts. Uh, legally. And so what this order, it's just as important to understand what this order does not do as what it does do. This order does not regulate the internet. What it does do is give the FCC jurisdiction for regulatory oversight of providers who provide access to the internet. Um, 
In my view, this decision is not radical. Rather, it's undoing prior FCC decisions that were radical. It was in 2002 and 2004 that the FCC uh, adopted orders that declassified or, or decided that broadband access to the Internet was not uh, a telecommunications service under Title II. And, what this, and that's what led to the legal sustainability problems. Then when the FCC subsequently tried to develop rules uh, that would uh, provide guidance for the conduct of these entities, um, they were considered not legally enforceable. So what this order does is say that broadband access to the Internet is a Title II telecommunications or common carriage service, and that's what gives the FCC jurisdiction. Uh, this is an so it's an important legal decision. Now, what does this mean, to be a common carrier? Uh, this is where there's been a lot of misinformation. Um, common carriage is not public utility. Those are two different bodies of law. Common carriage just simply means you're in the business of transmitting or transporting something of the choosing of the customer to another place, and you're doing it for a fee. Now, early on in history, our common carriers started out moving tangible goods or even people. Uh, but over time, beginning in the 19th century when we had these new electronic infrastructures, common carriage also uh, now apply to entities that electronically move information of the customer's choosing for a fee. So that applied initially to telegraph and telephone. Um, so this classification has nothing to do with whether you're a monopoly, has nothing to do with being a public utility or not. It has to do with whether you provide common carriage. It just so happens, historically, some entities are also, who are common carriers may also be a public utility. And that's where the confusion comes in. Uh, public utility in the United States is primarily a body of law that developed by our states. And it has to do when some uh, important infrastructure has to be built to provide an essential service to the public. So some entities that are common carriers are also public utilities and have franchises from the state. But there are also some entities who are public utilities that are not common carriers, like your gas and electric companies. So what's important here is what the FCC did was just make clear that they are common carriers uh, as a matter of federal law. And that's what gives the FCC jurisdiction to enforce basic obligations of common carriers. And I'll finish with this. What are the basic obligations of a common carrier? To serve upon reasonable request, to do so at just and reasonable rates, without unreasonable discrimination, and with adequate, adequate care or reliability. Those are the basic obligations. Okay, so one um, mischaracterization then would be that this is, uh, uh, you, you talked about the public utility because I think that's been one of the things that's been out there in the public. People yes. are saying, oh, hey, so they said they're going to treat the Internet like a public utility. Not true. That's not true. Okay, and so, and the other is that it's kind of like, uh, you know, the decisions over AT&T and, you know, those those communications monopolies, that. That's also not, not true. true. Right. What makes you a common carrier has nothing to do with monopoly. It has nothing to do with market structure. It's the function, the type of service that you're providing. Mm -hmm. The fact that you may also be a public utility for another reason um, and have obligations that come from that is a separate matter, and that's a matter of state law. Mm -hmm. But what the FCC did here is a matter of federal law and common right. carriage, and that is the only role that uh, competitive markets might come into play is to what degree the FCC might f what we call forbear from some of the statutory obligations of a common carrier. And that's the only relevance of market power uh, or, or competition, the extent to which competition might protect uh, customers um, adequately without the direct enforcement of the FCC. But that's independent. Forbearance is independent from the classification issue, whether you're a common carrier or not. Okay. So Smithville Communications, common carrier? 
Yes. Okay. So how how do you view this, uh, Colin? How do you view this uh, net neutrality issue? Well, it's a very complicated issue. Yes, it is. And uh, there are so many intricacies, and I think Barbara pointed out uh, the best, that there are so many misrepresentations out there because we tend to live in a world of sound bites when it comes to policy. And even some of the testimony I've read um, refers to this action as making Internet um, access providers utilities. And I think the, the concern for us is the rules tend to change too often within the FCC. And we have, um, we've been a victim of that. The layoffs we had in 2013 were a result of changes in the uh, calculation for universal service funding. And um, when that formula was determined by the new chairman at that time, Tom Wheeler, that um, it needed to be changed, we went back to the old regime of formula, which is now the interim formula, and we await over a year later for um, a permanent model for universal service funding, soon to be Connect America Fund. So the the rules, uh, if you will, um, are what they are now in regard to Title II, but they are always subject to change. And I think that's the concern of the entire communications industry. I think for the first time, this action has united the teleco- the telcos and the cable industry in saying, okay, but we would much rather you legislate this issue than try to forbear this and forbear that and call it uh, light touch Title II, which mm-hmm. is uh, what one of the commissioners called it. So I, I think that legislating is really the best answer because it is a very complex issue and there is so much um, at stake in terms of the economic impact, uh, not only for carriers but for users as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're very sensitive to that. And as a small carrier, uh, the principles of net neutrality have always applied. Um, we're not big enough to um, to determine to have a backbone, number one, uh, that is the size of Comcast or ATT Verizon. Uh, but we do have um, principles of, hey, uh, the network is robust. We don't have major issues. And um, it's free and open in terms of free flow of traffic. Uh, across the network. So people pay for that access, and we we respect the principles uh, that abide, abide us by net neutrality. Okay, so, um, you know, all three of you are so much uh, better versed on this than I am, so I'll get to ask all the dumb questions today. Uh, when you talk about uh, legislating, you, you'd like to see this legislated rather than, uh, I guess, the FCC? Mm-hmm. So yes. can you go a little further into that? So explain what you what you want, what we'd rather see. Sure. A year ago, uh, Christmas Eve 2013, um, the House Energy and Commerce Committee um, issued a data gathering um, festival, if you will, during 2014, uh, where numerous white papers, I believe six white papers were issued, and um, the responses were, were gathered during the course of 2014 to update the Communications Act. And the, the idea was that the act would be updated in 2015. And I think that's where the issue needs to lie. I think that the policy is such that, uh, as I said earlier, it is is such an important issue that uh, we need to have it codified in law and not just periodic rule-making, which people may call me a cynic, but I've been there, and we've done that. And um, uh, nothing against the FCC, but there's only so much, honestly, that they can do. I mean, we would, mu- we would be better off as a country if we had a policy 
uh, regarding an updated communications network infrastructure. We're still regulated to carry voice. Mm-hmm. We still have a congressional mandate, and yet um, landline voice is on the decline, has been for several years, um, but there's been no significant change in Congress until recently, a, a push to change that, uh, but a real change to make sure that we're providing data services in the same regard that we provide uh, provided telephone service. Okay. So, Matt Pierce, you have... You have varying viewpoints on this because you are a legislator. So, I mean, this is we're talking about the FCC, which is a federal operation. But as a legislator, I'm sure you're looking at this very carefully about whether it should be legislated or the FCC. And you teach telecommunications, so you're knowledgeable in that direction, too. So your reaction to what the FCC has done and where we are on this whole net neutrality. Right. And and I also uh, served as a chief of staff for a congressman, and I took for myself the telecommunications issues in the office at the time. So I got to deal with a lot of those um, big carrier lobbyists who'd come in and talk about what they needed back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, you know, I would agree that if Congress could come up with a good kind of regime to reach the goals of having this open internet with non-discriminatory handling of people's traffic, that would be great. But like everything that we talk about in D.C. today, it's like complete gridlock and really polarization. So you have on the Republican side pretty much a hostility to any kind of regulation relating to the the packets and anything, you know, remotely approaching a common carrier approach. Then you have, you know, not all of them, but most Democrats kind of on the other side saying we think we need some robust you know, rules here to make sure that everybody's treated fairly. Because the whole thing is really just about all of the people who have used the internet to drive our economy and be innovative and really access things to ensure they still have that access. Because the fear is that if you don't have some common carrier type regulations to ensure that everyone's data is is carried in a non-discriminatory way where it's, you're not unreasonably holding people up. If you don't have that, then if I come up with a great new app the cool new web page, the fantastic new streaming video entertainment, you know, service. If I have, you know, Verizon and AT&T and the bigger carriers basically saying, if you want to get access to our customers in a way that they can actually stream your product in real time, not have it pixelate, not have it freeze up, if they're able to kind of hold that over my head and say, unless you give me some kind of additional payment to make that happen, what you get is a limitation on the ability of new people to get in and offer those services. So, it would be great if Congress got together and did that. And as far as it's interesting, because we always have these waves where people say, well, gee, the law was written back in 1934. We need an update. And so in 1996, we did get a significant update of the Communications Act in 1934. But the truth is they kept an awful lot of stuff from the 34 Act that they found was still relevant. And, you know, I hear this in the legislature all the time, like, oh, we got these cell phones. And when we had when this law was written, you know, it was Morse code or something. And the truth is, if you think about it, you know, our cars today that we drive look nothing like the Model T or the Model A or whatever in the beginning, but nobody says the stoplight law, the stop sign law, the speed limit law that we enacted back then is outmoded and we don't need them anymore. And so it's just a matter of figuring out how to break through the gridlock and get people to sit down and work something out, and Mm -hmm. it's just not very likely in this current environment. Well, some of the some of the key issues um, involved here, and you just it sounds like you just cited one of them. hear people talking about the fast lane and the slow lane. So that's what you were referring to, right? That's that's just the biggest fear is that I I have a web page or some kind of service. I need the internet to get it to my customers. And I have the person who's carrying my data in between suddenly say to me that you're not going to be able to, 
get this as fast a service to your customers as you need unless you pay me some additional money. That's that's kind of the simple version of what it's about. I mean, to me, net neutrality is fascinating because on one level, it's a very simple, straightforward idea. But when you have to implement it and talk about, you know, the technological parts, the economic parts, and the, the legal parts, it, it gets very difficult then at mm-hmm. that point. All right. We're talking about the uh, the complex issue of net neutrality today, but we're trying to make it, try to break it down into something uh, much more manageable, and I, I believe we have the, just the three guests to do it. So uh, our guests are Rep- State Representative Matt Pierce, was who you were just hearing from, uh, Barbara Cherry, a professor in the Indiana University Department of Telecommunications, and Colin McCarty, the Executive Vice President of Smithville. Um, Smithville Communications. So if you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. And you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, Barbara, you look like you kind of wanted to react to a few things you've heard. Yes. um, In an ideal world, you would like to have updated legislation from time to time where uh, Congress can indicate what policy choices they would prefer implemented. But we are in a period of great political polarization and institutional gridlock, if you will. So that's going to be difficult. But in terms of understanding why you don't need to rely on legislation to the degree to some might argue, I think the following is is important to know. Throughout the deregulatory, we're in what we might call a deregulatory era. There's lots of, in the last few decades, there's a lot of areas in which we've been um, revisiting and lightening up on direct regulation. What sometimes people may forget is that even though we've had deregulatory policies for railroads and airlines, for example, they never lost their legal classification as common carriers. They still are. And all this time up in Canada, broadband access to the Internet has been common carriage. Uh, The United States is actually an outlier in terms of being a a country that went so far in deregulation that they actually declassified the service from its most fundamental status as being a common carriage type service, which is all what you're doing is carrying, um, in this case, information um, of the the, what we call the customers choosing for a fee. And so um, that notion is no more outdated as as Matt indicated about the need for rules of the road. It's no more outdated than the fact that, well, because we have free speech in the Constitution, does that mean because it goes back hundreds of years that it's no longer relevant? Common carriage actually is a body of law that arose because of this basic function that some entities provide. And there's a unique form of economic exploitation that can come from it. And it's the fact that a common carrier literally takes possession or control of the good or inf- whether it's tangible or in- intangible that they're moving for you. And once you've given up, the customer's given up control, there's all sorts of ability for the entity to exploit and take advantage of that control. So it's actually a very fundamental rule of the road and is not outdated in that sense. What may be outdated is how we might implement or with the fact that we might want to revise how we enforce those obligations, and that's what the forbearance power was meant to do. So in the 1996 Act, that was an update to the law that gives the commission more discretion, or uh, I guess you would say power, to modify the direct enforcement of certain aspects of the statutory obligations. But the basic classification, um, what I said before, what was radical was declassifying it. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually just restoring a classification that never should have been removed. And in so doing, that will give us uh, a sounder footing, and therefore we can focus our energies where it should be, which is uh, on 
what aspects of enforcement are necessary. Mm-hmm. And, and if I could just jump in on, because that word forbearance, I'm sure people out there have what no idea mean? what that's about. And, <laughs> right. that, and that, that was an interesting new concept that got put into the Communications Act in 1996, because they, Congress began discussing revising the Communications Act of 1934 and about the mid-1970s, and they finally got it done in 1996. And so they said, it may be a while before we can get in here and update these in the future, and we know that technology is beginning to move faster and faster. So they essentially said to the FCC, we're going to give you this unique power of forbearance, where you can basically say, there's a law in the books, but we think if we actually enforced it, it would not be in the public interest. And therefore, we can kind of back off and not enforce it. And that's, that's kind of pretty amazing when you think about it, where Congress says, we're putting all these laws on the books we're going to give you the ability to pick and choose which one of them you actually want to enforce because we know things will move faster than we can probably get back here and amend the law. Mm-hmm. But there's a very specific finding the FCC has to do. It can't just say we're not going to enforce it. They have to find that the reason why it's not in the public interest to directly enforce is because they, their assessment is, is that a competitive marketplace will be sufficient. Right. to protect customers. Okay. And that's where the competition part comes in. Okay. So, well, again, as a, as a consumer, you know, the, so the FCC voted three to two to go the way they, they did. So if they had voted three to two the other way, would I, what difference would it have made to me? Well, in, in my opinion, I think that what the bigger carriers were attempting to do is create a new business model, mm-hmm. right? So right now they get paid by the customers to get access to the internet. So I pay Colin my monthly fee and he puts that fiber to the home in my my house, which I hope will someday come into my neighborhood. And uh, and then at that point, I have the ability to request stuff from the internet and to upload things to the internet. And as long as I pay my monthly bill, I'm good to go. My data comes and goes. Well, if I'm a a business, I think that AT&T and Verizon are trying to create this new model where not only do you have to pay that initial thing to get hooked up and have your information go one direction, but you would have to pay to get it to come down to your customer. So if I'm Netflix and I want Matt Pierce, my subscriber, to get the movie, suddenly Netflix, and this is what really triggered a great interest in this, is Netflix had to do a side deal with, I guess it was Comcast, called a peering agreement to kind of get plugged more directly in because their signal, their packets were getting so degraded that it was annoying their customers, and they felt they had no choice but to do that. Now, I'm sure Comcast would argue that the, the, the demand of Netflix for movies was so big that they had to do this different thing and it cost money, and therefore Netflix had an obligation to pay. Netflix felt like it was kind of getting the gun stuck in its ribs and being told basically, hey, if you want your business model to keep going, you got to cut us in on the action and pay us some of this money, so we better have this side agreement. And so that's one of the things that um, Chairman Wheeler is trying to get at is to make sure if you're going to end up with some kind of specialized agreements, at least somebody's taking a look at them mm-hmm. to make sure that they're, you know, they're reasonable and that they're not just an attempt to have a new business model. So. To me, this is a really critical ruling by the commission to ensure you don't end up in this world where you're kind of having to pay on both ends in order to have the internet work the way we're used to it. All right, so I have to ask you this, and this is maybe a little far afield, but I'm gonna ask Matt this. So this is beginning to sound a little bit like the uh, solar uh, issue oh, in, the, in the state house, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I know I hadn't really uh, thought about that before, but um, I guess that you could, draw a parallel perhaps in that the um, 
utilities were arguing that somebody has to maintain the network overall to make sure you can always get electricity if your own kind of solar energy stops working or you just you're not getting the power you need. But I'm not I'm not sure if it's a direct okay analogy right. on that. All right. Well, net metering sounded like you know what you were talking about. All the bigger companies were saying you need to cut us in on the action, and that sounded right. a lot like the arguments against net metering. Yeah, I think I think it. It's similar in that it's a business model kind of thing because if you're an electric utility and you see suddenly everybody getting solar and wind and geothermal and things where they can be self-sufficient and maybe they only need to buy power from the Edwardsport power plant, you know, occasionally, that's going to cut way down on their profits and their ability to maintain their network. And so they would prefer to have the current business model and not let the new one grow up. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. When we come back, I want Colin to talk about the, the business aspects of this. And you can respond to the, the business model um, points that you've been making. Uh, but we are talking about net neutrality today with uh, Barbara Cherry, a professor in the IU Department of Technology. Tel- telecommunications. Uh, she's a former FCC strategic planning deputy, state representative Matt Pierce of Bloomington, who also teaches in telecom at IU, and Colin McCarty, the executive vice president of Smithville Communications. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition, and we will be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, and today we're talking about uh, net neutrality, the FCC's three to two vote in favor of uh, the policy, the, their, the policies that they have put in place um, was divided along party lines with Democrats saying it's aimed at preserving online competition by treating all online uh, traffic equally. Republicans say the commission has too much regulatory power. We've been talking about um, the issues, the mischaracterizations of what happened last week and uh, a whole lot with uh, three great guests today as I introduce, reintroduce them before the break, but I'll do that again. Barbara Cherry is professor of the Indiana University Department of Telecommunications, a former FCC strategic planning deputy. She's also worked for AT&T um, and Ameritech before that. Uh, State Representative Matt Pierce of Bloomington, who teaches in telecommunications at uh, IU as well as being a state representative, and Colin McCarty, the executive vice president of Smithville Communications. If you have a question or a comment, please give us a call at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 855-0811, or uh, you can join us online at, um, yeah, you can <laughs> find our 
our number, noonedition.indiana. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get that in just a minute. All right, so, uh, yeah, I lost my notes here. Okay, so I want to go back to Cullen because Cullen was, we were talking about business models and how we can, uh, you know, how, how Matt was seeing this as maybe it was a trend to change, some of the bigger companies were trying to change the business models. Do you have a response to that? Do you think that's the way it? Well, it goes back. Down? It goes back to our size. We are are not a obviously not a Comcast or an AT and T. We um, we've reached out to Netflix in the past uh, about peering. No response back whatsoever. We're so small and insignificant to a company like Netflix. It doesn't matter. So that tends to work both ways. But I think the heart of the issue for any carrier, large or small particularly uh, small guys, is, as I've tweeted several weeks ago, and it was favorited by Commissioner Rosenworcel, regulation is only as good as the money behind it. And what that means is, under Title II, for so many years, telephone companies have received carrier access, meaning the inter-exchange carriers, the long-distance companies, uh, the large backbone providers, would pay uh, access to the local networks. And that was at, done as a part of the divestiture of AT&T in the mid-'80s, and which was a much better uh, regime for small companies than opposed to the old settlement days when we would receive pennies on the dollar. That carrier access regime allowed us, as uh, small companies, to build the networks that we needed to build and got us to the point where we are today in the rural industry and enabled um, future Internet investment, future Internet advancement. Uh, we've gone from dial-up to DSL to uh, now gigabit uh, over fiber in many rural areas across the country now. But carrier access is going away by 2018, 2019, and there's no replacement for that. How do we replace that? We don't just rely on, and we couldn't, on the customer. Um, that is an incredible burden, and, and a good analogy is with any um, for example, any arts organization, uh, you can't support a symphony orchestra just on the box office. You have to have a lot of uh, a lot of donors, corporate sponsors, and so forth. And this station is a good example of that too, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have that kind of subsidy behind it. And um, the businesses in rural areas are are not big enough anymore, um, and, and not plentiful enough anymore to support that on an a plain market basis. We're seeing a flight away from rural areas into urban urban populations. And and that's a topic for another discussion. But um, or discussion for another topic. The, um, the fact of the matter is, is that for us smaller carriers, we need something behind that. I mean, if we're if we're going to live under under Title II, that that's fine, but put something behind it monetarily and let's get the job done. Uh, because that's what we've done as a company, is what a lot of our, our colleagues have done, is to invest uh, in, in fiber networks. We've borrowed, we have a loan from Rural Utility Service at USDA to, under the General Telecommunications Loan Program, it is not stimulus money, it's not a grant, it's a loan to build fiber to the home in our footprint. And we have to pay back that loan. And that loan, calculating that loan was based on the formulas we had received mm -hmm. and access, cost recovery, USF, you know, there are various formulas there, and that's, that's what is missing from this business aspect. Um, and even some of the price cap, or the larger carriers, if you will, that serve rural, and in particular companies like CenturyLink, Frontier, some of AT&T, but further out west, 
that's a lot of ground. And when you look at the land mass covered by rural companies like Smithville, it's 40% of the U.S. land mass, including Alaska and Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be something there in terms of, that's why I say there has to be a policy. Mm -hmm. There has to be an overarching policy. And I get the gridlock, and I understand the gridlock. A number of years, we had support on both sides of the aisle. Um, back in the Senate and the Senate Commerce Committee, it was didn't matter if it was Daniel Inouye who was the chair or Ted Stevens who was the chair. We had support. Uh, Rick Boucher was another one who testified before the Communications and Technology Subcommittee in the House. Congressman Boucher was a champion for our industry. So was Lee Terry, uh, a Republican, who was from Omaha. So we have a lot of congressional allies on, on both sides of the aisle. Now... The names I've mentioned are either deceased or have lost election, and that's where, as an industry, we have to go back and, and try to get that support again. But that's, that's the underlying core issue for us is it is monetary. But before I go to Barbara, I just want to ask uh, you, Colin, to talk about your, your footprint. I mean, how big of a company is Smithville Communications? We are the largest of the rural telcos in Indiana. We cover 18 counties, mm -hmm. and we have over 2,500 miles of fiber. Uh, including our middle mile network, if you will, that gets to the backbone. Right. And we serve approximately 20,000 subscribers in those 18 counties. But those 18 counties, among them are Green, Owen, Orange, Posey, um, uh, Tipton County, very rural counties. And uh, Hendricks County, we're in the far northwest corner that hasn't seen much development yet in mm -hmm. little old Lisden, but yet it's a totally fibered community. Right. So, um, and in this county as well. Uh, we build a lot of fiber down in the southwest part of Monroe County um, that has not seen a lot of development. But mm -hmm. there we are. That's that's what we need to do is to increase our or improve our access services. Right. Okay. Um, Barbara? Yes. Colin raises a very important point. Uh, having worked for AT&T and Ameritech myself, I know how important it is that these entities have to be financially viable ones to conduct their business. And this is where Title II classification may actually help. Uh, when we've been talking about common carriage so far and, and its relationship, we've been talking primarily about the, the relationship between the carrier and the customer, mm -hmm. the retail customer, mm -hmm. or the content provider like Netflix, which are sometimes referred to as edge providers. Another important set of relationships are the providers to providers, carriers to carriers. And when it was mentioned earlier that peering arrangements, you would ask for a peering arrangement and we get no response. That's because the FCC also didn't have jurisdiction over that peering arrangement. If this is considered now, as it is now, a Title II telecommunications service, now the FCC has jurisdiction to oversee interconnection among providers. And so now there's an avenue, both with, in cooperation with the states and the FCC, to ensure that you have uh, reasonable interconnection arrangements among entities. And this could be an important um, legal mechanism through which you can get better um, handle on the financial arrangements between these entities. Mm -hmm. And so that, that is very important, no. and that adds to the complexity. But this is actually where Title II helps, and the FCC expressly um, is asserting jurisdiction um, to deal with interconnection among providers. Okay, so just to clarify for, for my sake, so Cullen's got the interconnection with the backbone, but then he was mentioning not being able to get Netflix to who's a it. content provider. Okay, so right. would you would that be an interconnection? Are you talking about an interconnection between Cullen and Netflix? 
too, or they're just a content provider, so they would be outside of this? Well, this is where we will have to see when we get the order. We have <laughs> okay. over a 300-page order. Yeah. My understanding is is that Netflix would be considered an edge provider mm-hmm. with a common carriage-type relationship. Um, but they're the, and realistically, to deliver any content from a provider like Netflix to the ultimate viewer or customer, there's a sequence of companies um, that have to interconnect and keep carrying the information down. And the FCC, and when he was referring to access charges before, that's a form of interconnection between a long-distance telephone company and the local company. So here the FCC will have jurisdiction to deal with interconnection arrangements among entities through whom we all have to coordinate in some way to get to the customer. And so this actually could be an avenue to help them. Gotcha. And and, and, if I may add real quick. When when we talk about Netflix as a as an industry, mm-hmm. um, there's another misconception. Yes, Netflix pays for access to the backbone for transport. That's great. But when it gets to the local network, there therein lies the difference. We have seen a substantial increase in 2014 of Netflix traffic versus everything else. Netflix blows it out of the water, and they're responsible for half the Internet traffic in North America. So when it arrives in our local networks, we don't have the capability that we did going back to the old voice days where we would get that, that compensation. We get nothing from Netflix. So when, when our industry says they write us for free, that's what we mean, is that they write us for free. Once they get to the local network, Here again, what the subscriber pays isn't necessarily going to cover it, number one. Number two, there are going to be a lot of customers who subsidize those other customers who do use Netflix, if you understand what I'm saying. Okay, Matt. I I just wanted to add an aside on these interconnection issues that um, people might want to be aware that the state legislature, as rapidly as it can, has been divesting the utility commission of any authority over these things. So. In the last century, it's developed as kind of a partnership where the FCC will deal with kind of the federal interstate stuff, and then intrastate things will be handled by the Utility Commission, and there's kind of a partnership in how they allocate who's going to do what. And the legislature has been very aggressively eliminating every last vestige they can get of Utility Commission oversight of telecommunications services. And they're basically saying we can just rely upon the federal government to do all that. But the thing they don't tell you is that at the same time, they're out at the federal government saying you can forbear and use your powers not to enforce any of these. And we don't need any interconnection um, in the IP world at all, which this is the other thing that really confuses it. We have this thing called the Internet, right? And it's, it's had a very light regulatory touch as it's developed. And now... The traditional telephone is migrating to voice over internet protocol, so it's all going to be ones and zeros, this packets of data. And what the carriers want to have happen, the big carriers, is that they basically say, once I take your voice call and I plug it into voice over, make it VOIP, so now it's digital, at that point there shouldn't be any regulation just like the internet. And and so that's what they've been telling the federal government is they were saying, get rid of this stuff. We don't need it. We're one big happy family here in the Internet. All of our, inter- our networks seamlessly connect. It'll be great. No need to regulate anything. And they're moving the states out of the way as much as they can, saying you can rely upon the federal government. At the same time, they're out telling the federal government, you don't need to do any of this yourself. All right. Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's really a fascinating issue, and we've, we've hit a lot, of, a lot of different parts of it. We're, we have a... Uh, well, we had a phone caller, but I guess he, he's gone. He had a question, um, but it wasn't about exactly about net neutrality. Maybe he'll 
get back to us here in just a minute. If you have a question or a comment, please give us a call at 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So I know, you know, last week was a big week, but that doesn't end all this discussion. I uh, read a New York Times story just this morning that was talking about how, yeah, now wait wait and see what's next. So what is going to be next? Where are we going to go with all this? Colin, do you have a, a sense of it, or are you just waiting for the courts to sort this out? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Litigation city. Yeah. Uh, well, it, fire up your lawyers. There are a couple different levels, and this, this is where if you teach, like, policymaking, you just love this stuff, because you basically have all these moving parts and gears that, like, work together and interact with each other. And so you've got the FCC's, you know, is implementing and adopting a regulation, and they have to do that within the law, and they always get sued on everything they do. So the courts will get this case. And one of the biggest arguments or proponents of this common carriage approach, this Title II thing, is that their authority is pretty clear in that area. What really was causing the FCC to get ruled as out of bounds by the courts in the last two rounds is because they kept trying to do common carriage types of things to services they had said were information services. So by kind of correcting what I think was an error in the first place back in the early 2000s, they're on a stronger footing. But they're going to have to go through that process of having it go up to the court system and argue that what they're doing is is not legal. At the same time, you've got a Republican-controlled Congress, which doesn't like these rules at all. As you know, they're a very pro-deregulatory party. And so they will probably do something um, called a Congressional Review Act, where within 60 days of the rules, they can vote to overturn the rules. And the important thing is that statute allows them to bypass a filibuster in the Senate. So you can actually, so I would anticipate the Republicans will pass a law that says that it you, you know, basically invalidates the rule. The thing is, it must be signed by President Obama, and he's not very likely to do that because he came out in favor of these rules. So then you have to see, well, is there, are there two-thirds of the Congress willing to override his veto, which is not very likely at all. So you're going to have this little bit of this kind of um, performance by Congress to say we don't like this and pass that through, and you'll have the courts kind of working away. And at the meantime, you'll have... Um, you know, the FCC actually putting the order out, implementing it, and, and doing all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Wow. Barbara? Yes, this is just part of the merry-go-round, if you will. You have legislation. If you delegate it to an agency, an agency implements. If somebody doesn't like it, they appeal it to the courts. And, of course, there's always the legislature that's available to override everything. Yeah. So we've seen this cycle over and over again. It happens at the federal level. It happens at the state level. Um, so we can expect that kind of thing uh, to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, but the importance of this is a case where it's really kind of the public, what's, what rules are in the public interest versus what rules do some entities want that particularly enables them to drive certain business plans. So if you want to strip back the layers, that's really what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a lot of discussion about, um, and, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you guys for help, but that if the FCC acted one way, I guess if they had voted the other way, it would have inhibited investment in the, in the people who were opposing the FCC's, or were, one side of this debate was about how if the FCC acted in one way, it would inhibit investment in the internet. It would it would it would it would harm smaller companies from investing. I assume that was if they had not 
um, acted on this common carriage. Well, I, I, yeah. I think I think that what that was was the was the industry saying if you regulate us as a common carrier, we won't invest anymore. I see. Okay. And that was the argument because what happened with the last court case, and Barbara can probably talk to this much more accurately than I can, but. The last court case kind of said, well, here's a way we think if you want to try to get at this and call them information services, you can use this thing called Section 706 and do these different things. And that seemed to be what the commission was kind of thinking of doing. And I think the industry preferred that approach, maybe because they thought they had a better chance to beat it a third time in the courts. But they seemed to kind of like that. And instead, the commission was convinced to go to the common carrier route, which gives it a firmer legal ground and and a more robust ability to kind of decide what needs to happen. Okay. Okay, we do have a phone call now. So uh, I believe we have Jeff on the phone from Bloomington. Jeff? Hello, Jeff. Are you there? Yeah, Jeff, go ahead. Um, First of all, I wanted to mention that Barb Cherry's arguments have carried the day that she, her legal arguments in particular, and and we are all grateful to her for that. Um, and, and Matt has played a key role in the state, I think, in in helping to get the the networks built and and operate fairly. Um, and I'm I'm really sorry to hear that the uh, that Smithville uh, needs help, um, uh, and I hope they get it. Uh, but but I, I you know I, I didn't hear quite the the end of the, the answer to your question about uh, the supportability that. The, the, the sort of theory that the, the networks, uh, the network providers, have been uh, working on is this sort of two-sided market theory, where you get paid uh, by the customer to get access to the network, and then you have to charge the providers, uh, like Netflix, for for better access to those customers. Um, it looks like that model is not being adopted, and, and wondered um, uh, whether. Uh, it, any or all of the three people there think that it's necessary to have that two-sided market. Colin, you want to expand on what what you've been saying and and maybe take that question from Jeff? Sure. Well, first, yeah, we're not we're not in financial trouble. Uh, I don't want that to be very clear. <laughs> um, but my point was, we've been operating under a a certain uh, regulatory regime where carriers paid each other for access, and and. The point with Netflix is Netflix is a content provider. Uh, they are a, could be argued, a cost causer. Uh, we know that charging Netflix is a, it's not possible because it is the World Wide Web. You don't want to get into that, that type of, of environment. Um, but I think that whole, that whole issue um, from that con- Comcast perspective is that they are so large their footprint is so big uh, that they felt that they were in a position to go to Netflix and say, look, if you want access, uh, if you want better access, if you don't want buffering, uh, let's work out this kind of an arrangement. Now, that's Comcast. But uh, from our perspective, uh, going back to the the local side of the network, if you will, there again, um, that's for a company like Smithville, that's where the, the economics lies on the local side of the network. We still have to maintain it, even on a fiber network. Uh, there are still electronics to maintain. So you have to look at, at what what a future Title II regime should look like, or you want that to look like, that is in the public interest. Because otherwise, you put so much of the burden, the cost burden, on the consumer. Right now, under Section 254 of the Communications Act, through universal service, all telecom services pay into the universal service fund. 
that is one of the sections that has been left out of, of this new rule. Um, but I think there's going to come a day that something similar to that will have to be enacted simply because, again, you can't put so much of the cost burden on the consumer. It's not fair to the consumer. There's no way they could afford it. Uh, but at the same time, we have a network to sustain, and that's all communications carriers. Isn't that sort of separate from the net neutrality issue, though? I mean, that's a question of whether rural consumers should be subsidized, basically, in some form or another because of the difference in costs. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and that's what makes this so complicated. I mean, one eventually bleeds over into the other. But you're right. That is a, a separate issue. Yes. Barb? And wouldn't your rural customers be unhappy if suddenly they had to either pay more for Netflix or uh, uh, not get access to Netflix at speeds that they like because you, you couldn't pay, uh, you know, you couldn't make a deal like Comcast does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's yeah. why I think they enacted net neutrality, but that's my opinion. Well, that, and, and that's, yeah, we're, we're all for that. I think that I, yeah. I hope I'd made that clear early, early on. We're for the, the principles of net neutrality 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, right. this is Barb. Um, with regard hi, to, hi. Uh, with regard to your question about what the relationship is going to be between edge providers like Netflix and the internet access providers, it's not totally clear to me because this is a, th- a 300 page order that has yet to be released. The most that we've seen is like a four page fact sheet. And um, what my understanding from the fact sheet and the description so far, what is prohibited is what they call paid prioritization. And what that means is, and looking right at the fact sheet that the FCC released, it says broadband providers may not favor some lawful internet traffic over other lawful traffic in exchange for consideration of any kind. In other words, no fast lanes. Now, this has more to do with a discriminatory kind of problem. It's not clear to me whether it means there can't be any payment at all or rather, it's just not discriminatory. So I don't know whether the two-sided is totally out or not, if you follow my reasoning here. Yeah. Um, so um, what is important is that the FCC is going to consider the relationship between a Netflix and the providers as a common carriage one. And that the importance of that is that it doesn't mean there won't necessarily be any compensation, but there can't be any unreasonable discrimination in the compensation. Right. Right. And if it is interpreted that way, then there still could be some um, cash flow going from these other providers to the entities. But exactly how it's going to work, this is where um, we need to know more detail uh, from the order itself. Um, one other thing that's important about the order that I think relates to this is this um, concept of reasonable network management. Um, it says, for purpose of the rules other than paid prioritization, ISP may engage in reasonable network management. Uh, what that means is if, for example, there were bona fide um, engineering reasons behind why something needs to be done, that's fine. It's just that um, reasonable network management does not include just doing something for a business purpose. So if, taking the example going back to Comcast and Netflix some time ago when Comcast was slowing Netflix traffic and saying, if you want to go t- at a higher speed, you've got to pay us. And then the fact that net- once the Netflix paid, then automatically the speed went up. Well, Chairman Wheeler viewed that as a clear example. Well, there could, it couldn't have been a lack of capacity problem on behalf of Comcast because the minute Netflix paid, the traffic speed went up. So he's trying to allow genuine engineering concerns by recognizing network management 
network management problems, but not just allowing somebody to use that as uh, essentially a pretense right. for trying to artificially cause another uh, financial flow. So I believe the pieces are there. Exactly how the machinery is going to work, we don't know um, until the 300-plus the page order is out. But So I believe there may be some room for some compensation on the other end, but obviously there would be commission oversight to make sure it's not abused. All right, we have one minute to go, and we're giving it to Matt Pierce. I was just going to say that's, <laughs> that's really an important point to make is that what they're outlawing is unreasonable discrimination. And so what you hear from carriers a lot of times is like, gee, if I've got some surgeon doing a heart operation remotely you know, over my network, and you're telling me I might have to let him get slowed down so somebody can get their Netflix movie, that's crazy. I have to have that ability to do that. And they were arguing that somehow they'd be precluded from that general management of the network where you prioritize things. And as long as they're prioritizing it uh, not unreasonably and genuinely for network management, not just to say, well, if we slow these guys down, we can get money out of them later, then that's still fine. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to thank uh, Jeff for calling. And thank you, guys. It's been, sure. been a great conversation today. We really appreciate having you on. Barbara Cherry, uh, Rep- State Representative Matt Pierce, and Colin McCarty have all been here with me today. For producers Lacey Scarmana and Alexander McCall, for engineer Mike Pashkash, and for my usual partner Mary Catherine, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined. Addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu.